Amen. Thank you. Please sit down. Good morning. Thanks, guys. <clears throat> it's a lovely, uh, gentle sense of the presence of God this morning. That pen's determined to stay on the floor. Let it. <laughs> okay. Um, this week, my uh, daily readings were in the book of Daniel. And uh, I was reading about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he told nobody about it, and he threatened his wise men and sorcerers that if they couldn't tell him what his dream was and what it meant, uh, basically he was going to kill them. And Daniel came forward and said, no man could possibly know what you dreamt, uh, but there is a God in heaven who does know, and he's revealed it to me. And then he described back to the king what the king himself had seen in his dream, a statue Awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was gold, the chest and arms silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet part iron and part clay. And then he gave its meaning. He said, You, O king, are that head of gold. And after you, another kingdom will rise. Uh, inferior to yours, next a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. In that time, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And so it was, historically, that the uh, kingdom of Babylon, the gold, was succeeded by the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans, silver, bronze, iron. And then at the time of the Roman Empire came the Messiah, and the kingdom was established that will endure forever. Now, as you know, we're doing a series at the moment on Ephesians. And as we've already heard, the book of Ephesians is known as the Alps of the New Testament. It's the high places that reveal the mysteries of this very kingdom and the high status of the body of Christ and the indescribable blessings that he's got planned for us. But these blessings are conditional upon certain disciplines or um, expectations of God's people. And chapters 4 and 5 turn to these expectations. Now, I would really labour the point that the call to purity in Ephesians is set very much in the context of grace. Because I know and believe that we never achieve purity by focusing primarily upon it. So don't forget that Ephesians 4 is all wrapped around with this uh, expansive revelation of who Jesus is. The Alps of the New Testament uh, take us uh, to the heights and, and tells us very clearly that Jesus is our source and reveals him as the Lord of Lords, the Redeemer, the resurrected ruler, the one in whom history will be fulfilled, the reigning king over all powers, the cornerstone of salvation, the treasure whose riches are unsearchable, the giver of gifts, the victor over Satan, mighty in battle. And I really kind of wanted to start with that vision that um, 
Daniel had, uh, really just to um, put this whole thing in the context of the greatness of God and how God uh, rules throughout all of history. And I want to say to you personally that if you're struggling to live this Christian life, if the expectations for God's people leave you feeling like you're living in failure, then my advice would be stop focusing on your efforts and look to him. Worship him. Declare who he is. Keep coming back to all of this. Who he is. Enter his presence with praise. And then he will work through you. And that's purity. It's inside out. Him working through you. Paul longed for the church to please God. And he knew that to achieve that, he'd got to direct them to their source of power. And it's only in that context that he moves in chapter 4 to what's expected of us. And so this morning, we come to Ephesians 4, and uh, these three expectations of the people of God. Number one, to diligently pursue unity. Number two, to grow to maturity. And thirdly, to live lives of purity, and so avoid grieving the Holy Spirit. So number one, unity. I'm going to read the first six verses. It's coming up on the screen. Of Ephesians 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The message puts it this this way, it says you were all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction. And when I read that, I immediately thought of Ezekiel's vision of heaven, where he saw intersect wheels and they were all moving differently and yet traveling in the same direction and we might move in different circles and operate very different gifts but we travel ultimately in the same direction one with God one with each other and not one with the world now nobody can deny that what we've been through as a church was bound to be a challenge to our unity but if there's one thing I've learned it's this, that I have a personal responsibility for unity. That's nothing to do with being a pastor. It's because I'm a member of this body. And uh, that means it's your responsibility too. You are personally accountable for unity. That's a very daunting thought, isn't it? Because we are so different and we think differently and we have different spiritual pathways. By that I mean, you know, we we experience God through different ways and we express our faith differently. And something that really excites me might be very boring to you and so on. But John Maxwell said, in order to build unity amongst diversity, we've got to ask ourselves these questions. Am I building people or am I just using people? Do I care enough to be honest if it will make a difference? Am I really listening to other people? Am I actively working to build right relationships? Not just not causing trouble, but actively working to build right relationships. What are the major strengths I can look for in other people? 
Do I place a high priority on their role? Have I shown them that I value them and their role? And are my goals compatible with theirs? Paul says in verse 2, which is in blue on the screen, that unity depends on humility, gentleness, patience, mutual forbearance and love. You can have the finest structures in the world. And I've lost count of how many conferences and books and teaching programs there are about how we should do church and structure and all the rest of it. But without these qualities, we're sunk. John Stott said the moral is more important than the structural. And so in verse 2, we've got these five foundation stones of unity. The word translated humble, strictly translated, it means lowliness of mind. And that's not low self-esteem, but it's recognising the worth and value of other people. Now, it's funny, because this is by no means rocket science, is it? And yet, how difficult do we find it to actually... um, not be driven by the need to gain respect rather than giving respect. And gentleness doesn't mean being weak. It means having one's strength under control. And I can honestly say that I can only recognise true spiritual authority in gentle people, um, like Jesus, who was gentle and lowly in heart. Patience and long-suffering also go together. Now, I come from a family known for impatience. It's definitely a pace family trait, um, believe me. But um, I need to recognise that then, don't I? And ask God to help me because it doesn't come naturally to me. But verse 2 binds all this together in one word, love. Bearing with one another in love. And you can have a degree in theology. You can be designated an apostle or a prophet. You can hold a title in the church. You can claim many years of service. But without these simple qualities, there will be division. Because unity depends on these five qualities. And Paul labours the point that unity arises out of the unity in the Godhead. That's the basis of our unity. And he repeats the word one no less than seven times. In what might have been an early church hymn or creed, he says one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. I need to remember that, don't I, when I don't agree with people. I think sometimes it's the people closest to us that we have the most difficulty getting along with. We, we expect people in different traditions and so on to do things differently. But when leaders make decisions that affect me, or when people moan and complain about things that I actually think are right and good, or somebody puts something on Facebook and I think I don't agree with that, I have these seven things in common with that brother or sister in Christ. You know, you might think I'm crazy, but I've got seven things in common with you. Somebody disagreed with me about something not long ago. And he was ever so kind. He bought me a book to convince me that I was wrong. And uh, it didn't. Um, I could have got a bit angry, really, but do you know what? We have the same spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, the same God. We're members of the same body. Now, if there is just one body of Christ, you might point out 
that churches split all the time, that people leave churches because of disunity. Um, and you might think you see disunity all around you. But it's an interesting question to, to ask. Is that what God sees? What does God see? In spite of all our differences, doesn't he see one church, one body? And the reason Paul exhorts us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit isn't because we can possibly tear apart the body of Christ, but we can grieve the Spirit. A friend of mine had the heartbreak a few years ago of her two children falling out with each other. And they wouldn't speak or get together. So for a while, if it was Christmas, if it was Mother's Day, she got to be with one or the other of them. And um, it didn't change the fact that they were her children. She only had one family. She's only got one family, but it grieved her. And I felt that her children were behaving very selfishly. You know, that they were thinking only of themselves and not putting it aside for her sake, even when it was her birthday. They were behaving like children. And that brings me to the second expectation, maturity. If we don't take seriously our own personal responsibility for unity, are we childish? Are we treating God the way they treated their mum? He wants us to be together and is it a definition of maturity that we lay aside our differences for his sake, that we forgive one another for his sake? The next verse in Ephesians 4 reminds us that our unity can be enriched by our diversity. Verse 7 says to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Nobody can dispute Jesus Christ's authority to decide who has what gifts. He has defeated, dethroned and disarmed the principalities and powers and ascended as conqueror to the Father's right hand and he fills the universe and he rules the church and he bestows the gifts. And I'm not sure you can put a number on the gifts that he bestows. The Bible says there are diversities of gifts. I've lost count of how many times I've heard people say there are nine gifts of the Spirit based on a list in 1 Corinthians 12. But the New Testament names many others. For example, Romans 12 talks about serving, teaching, encouraging, contributing to need, leadership, showing mercy. I think if we're honest, people probably find tongues or prophecy a lot more uh, sensational than showing mercy but only Jesus can say what's most important and he has given gifts and ministries to his church to equip us for service and to bring us to maturity so in Ephesians 4 we get this list of the fivefold ministries and by calling them that right away we seem to suggest that there isn't anything else you know the fivefold ministries but of course there are other gifts and functions but we're in Ephesians 4 and I don't want to downplay the importance of these leadership roles so verse 11 says Christ himself gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the pastors and teachers now, the first few years of my Christian life, I was in a church where we were taught that there are no apostles today, that the apostles were the original eyewitnesses. And I remember once uh, somebody 
in another church had called himself an apostle. And the elders went mad. There are no apostles today, they said. I do think perhaps the danger lies in calling ourselves anything. I think our ministries should speak for themselves. But all I know is, if I ask myself the question, do I know anybody with the same authority as Peter and Paul? I would probably say no. But over the years, I have witnessed people sent by God pioneers, missionaries, church planters, people whose calling is to establish or shape a church or a movement. And that seems to me to be the definition of an apostle. So I've rejected that earlier teaching that I had a long time ago. And we do need apostolic leaders. And I would say that our church was founded and established by apostolic leadership. The prophet is one who speaks forth the word of God, not necessarily like Daniel foretelling the future, uh, not necessarily like Paul. He had such authority that his writing uh, became part of the canon of scripture. But we need prophetic ministry today to bring new understanding of original revelation. Uh, The prophet is sensitive to world events and uh, able to read the signs of the time. And today's church needs the prophetic voice to inspire us and correct us and motivate us. The evangelist we know, uh, the one who shares Jesus with those who don't know him. Actually, this word isn't mentioned that many times in the New Testament. Maybe it's partly because we're all called, aren't we, to tell the world about God's love and his forgiveness. But once again, we know that there are people who are specially gifted in evangelism, either personal evangelism or through media and music or whatever. And pastors and teachers, we know. Uh, Shepherds, guarding the people, nurturing the people, training the people. Now, in these changing times for us as a local church, I think we have to be patient if we don't see all of this in place yet. The leaders know what we need, but I think we might give them some time to uh, work things out and, and, and to look at the gifts that God has given to us as a church. But just to say that the biblical model is of a body with Christ being the head. And I love the story of a certain church in Connecticut. It, was called St. it is called St. Paul's Church. And on their bulletin, apparently on the front page, it says, Rector, the Reverend Everett Fulham, and then Assistant Rector and his name, and Second Assistant Rector and his name. And then it says, Ministers, the entire congregation. That's a mature church, isn't it? I think that's a good definition of a mature church. Ministers, the entire congregation. Because we're all agreed on this aim that Paul writes about in verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And how will people see that we've matured? Verse 15, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work so each part of the body doing his or her work according to our calling is one definition of maturity 
I've got a little uh, 12-week-old grandson. He's 12 weeks old today. And uh, he's learning to use his hands. You know, if you, if you hold out a toy, he's, he's learning to put his hands to it. And uh, the next step, he will grab it and put it into his mouth, won't you? Because that's, that's normal development. And also, when you sit him on your lap and he feels his feet, right away he pushes down on his feet as though he's trying to stand up, which, of course, he can't do because he's only 12 weeks old. But he's learning to use his hands and his feet. Maturity is using every part of the body. You know, the baby needs to be equipped to do that. He needs food and nurture and love and affirmation. And this body of Christ is probably not fully functioning yet. There are parts that haven't begun to be used yet. But if you're one of the parts, recognize your personal calling, not only to unity, but also to maturity. That is, to start to do what God is calling you to do. You might not be ready... Teddy isn't ready to walk yet at 12 weeks old, but at least think about it and flex the muscles and acknowledge that you're a Christian minister. Remember, ministers, the entire congregation, part of this body, and every part needs to function. Finally, we come to chapter 17 onwards, and in my Bible, it's headed, Living as Children of Light. So number three, Purity. We have personal responsibility for unity and for growing to maturity. Also for living as children of light. And so Paul says in verse 17, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Well, that's a bit serious because he's saying in the name of the Lord, I'm insisting on this. So we can't ignore it. And he's telling us that we're no longer to live like pagans. He says, put off your old self, put off falsehood, speak truthfully. In your anger, do not sin, don't steal, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Get rid of bitterness and rage and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. So this is really practical stuff, isn't it? Now, if you know me at all, you know that I have this very negative reaction whenever anybody talks about what we should or shouldn't do. As Christians, it really winds me up. Because <laughs> to me, it kind of smacks of legalism, you know, and people say we ought to do this and we shouldn't do that as Christians. Because the tyranny of the oughts and shoulds never, ever empowered anybody to change, did it? And I think to myself, we are the children of God, we are part of God's family, there are no oughts and shoulds. But these verses tell me that Paul entirely understood this. And that's why I love God's word, because it just understands us so well. Paul says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. What Paul is saying then is that it's empty minds and inner spiritual darkness and separation from God that leads people to be hard-hearted and then to fail. He understands that transformation comes from within. 
Simply put, when we lose our sensitivity to God's word and his spirit, we lose the ability to control our own behavior. And I really feel God has given me a word to say that his compassion and his understanding and his mercy and his love and his concern is for you. If you're caught up in the relentless cycle of trying and failing and trying again and failing again, you know, like a hamster's wheel, then Paul understood that. When people lose sight of God, and when the word doesn't get through, then bitterness and malice and all the rest, they're just the inevitable consequences of that kind of hardness and being cut off from God. And we see a world that's full of such things because the world doesn't know God and can't receive the word. However, you came to know Christ, verse 20. You heard him, verse 21. You were taught in him, verse 22. You were given the ability to grasp the truth. You received the gift of repentance. and You could put it all off and take on a new nature. You were recreated. Your mind was renewed. You exchanged the old for the new. And God says, you can come back to him in exactly the same way. I want to finish with this word that I believe God has given me for anybody. And maybe you feel your heart has become harder again. And maybe your understanding of God is darker than it was. And you feel as though perhaps you've lost touch with him. My last point is so very simple. If you're striving to live right and failing every day, you'll never win. And being told what you should do and you ought to do and you shouldn't do, it'll just drive you further away. But verse 20 says, you did not come to know Christ that way. He's your source. It's all about him, not you. It's his gifts, not your striving. And quite simply, there is a promise of renewal for you. And it's a gift. On Thursday night, I was praying with two friends, and uh, as we prayed, one of them uh, read this scripture, and we all felt that God was giving us this word, and it's from Isaiah 43. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Now, I sense... Actually, I know that there are people in our church who feel they're in a wilderness. Maybe you take very seriously the call to strive for unity and to become a mature member of the body, but somewhere along the line, your heart got harder again and uh, the word isn't getting through. And it's too easy to dwell on the past, isn't it? Oh, look how it used to be. It's very easy to do that. But God says, forget that, I'm doing something new for you personally. I'm not really talking about the kind of church's vision now. It's too soon for that, I imagine. But for you personally, God says, there is a new season, a personal renewal. And we prayed together on Thursday night and and we heard that scripture. And then on Friday morning, my other friend Uh, text us to say this was in her reading on the 21st of August and I'll read it to you. Behold I make all things new. 
It is only the earthbound spirit that cannot soar. Every blessing I send you, every joy, every freedom achieved from poverty and worry will loosen a strand that ties you to earth. It is only those strands that bind you. Therefore, your freedom will mean you rising into the realm of joy and appreciation. Clipped wings can grow again. Broken voices regain a strength and beauty unknown before. Your power to help others will soon bring you to delight. Even when at first, the help to yourselves may seem too late to bring you joy. Worn out and tired as you may seem, and pain weary, I say unto you, Behold, I make all things new. That promise will be fulfilled. Tenderly across the years, yet tenderly close, and near to your tired, noise-weary ears, I speak to you, my loved ones, today. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As Paul said in Ephesians 4, you did come to know Christ that way. It's true that yours and my responsibility is unity and maturity and purity. But these disciplines are set definitely in the context of grace, of mercy and love and Jesus being our source. So I'm going to pray. And as I do, I just want to read that promise to you again. Worn out and tired as you may seem, and pain weary, I say unto you, behold, I make all things new. That promise shall be fulfilled. Tenderly across the years, yet tenderly close, and near to your tired, noise-weary ears, I speak to you, my loved ones, today. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father God, we thank you that we did come to know Christ that way. It was all about grace. It was nothing to do with us. It was all to do with you and your grace. And I pray, Lord, in the context of your high calling for us to live in unity, to grow to maturity, to live pure lives, pleasing to the Holy Spirit. Lord, in that context, I just pray for more and more of your grace, for a new season, for people who are feeling weary, for people who are feeling failure, Lord, that they haven't achieved this high standard. Lord, we just come to you as we are and we thank you for grace and we pray for yet more grace. Lord, we thank you that by the power of your Spirit, you will lead us in the way that you've called us to live. And so, Lord, I just pray for any who feel they've been on a treadmill of effort and failure and repeated effort and failure. Lord Jesus, just we just come to you in the way we came to you in the early days of our Christian life. And we just pray that you'll give us rest and that you'll fulfill your purpose in us, Lord, by your grace. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.